like I, I obviously have ways and things that I give patients for an HEP, but um, mainly hip IRER and then shoulder IRER. I'm just curious your take on things because I'm more of like typical musculoskeletal HEP stuff. You having the knowledge you have with like rib and pelvis and like the different kind of stuff that you do that is cool. I'm just curious if you had any, they don't have to be outside of the box. You can just give me like some of your big ones, but any other, any other thoughts to like somebody like myself that doesn't usually incorporate things like with those two structures might have. Right. Um, so I guess they, they play well with each other to, to talk about them both together um, because of like the understanding of how you would implement an activity. Uh, it goes back to looking at both at the same time. So you got to look at the relationship of the rib cage to the pelvis, um, whether you're addressing either one of them, um, it, it still makes a difference. So it plays, plays well together as far as knowing the, the foundation of the concepts. Um, my impl- how I would go about treating it is a little bit different side to side or um, shoulder between lower extremity and upper extremity. Um, as far as, you know, when I would go to an activity, um, some of that is just due to kind of what we were talking about with the structural uh, differences with genetics. I just feel like there's bigger discrepancies in structure joint with the hip socket as opposed to the shoulder socket. Um, Mm -hmm. Meaning that the like like we talked the the hip joint can be a lot deeper for some people and more shallower for others. Um, so I feel like the implications for that um, to possibly have restrictions in somebody that is not changeable or something that you wouldn't necessarily want to try to force into is a lot greater in the hip as opposed to the shoulder. Um, whereas the shoulder, it I mean that socket's shallow to begin with. Um, and then you could have some differences in the acromion, um, which would probably be the biggest one. But uh, the, the scapula is much more free-floating, sitting on top of a rib cage that it can change and alter its position uh, significantly more than uh, a pelvis or a nominate that's attached to an SI joint, that there's some motion, but it isn't much. So it, with the, my thought process as far as addressing um, the, the hip is I, I try not to, I, I really don't force it whatsoever. Um, and just kind of allow it to achieve whatever range of motion that kind of comes on, um, given the constructs of the, the, or I guess the overlying tenets or beliefs that, uh, I have of it, I guess, as far as the treatment goes, which I'm not, uh, yeah, I'm, not I'm not trying to jam anybody into a, a certain position, and I know you don't necessarily do that either, but um, as far as trying to aggressively and, and beating my head over it, if there is no change as far as after an intervention, I'm not beating my head over it with the, the lower extremity, which for the upper extremity, uh, I, I'll beat my head over it a little bit more and figure out why it isn't changing, I guess. <laughs> yeah. And I mean, so to go back to your first point, it makes sense with like with the hip have a deeper socket if you have a variance it's going to be a lot more noticeable than if you have a variance with the shoulder and i would say i've definitely gotten better i've never cranked people into like 
with regarding the hip, like especially in the internal rotation, just because personally I don't like that. Um, but I feel like I've gotten a little bit more soft with it as well in my techniques, like both manual and like like exercise intervention since talking and kind of working with you over the past. So, um, yeah, I've definitely gotten, I feel like, more towards your side and kind of follow that do, belief system a little more. Do you feel like you've, you've still gotten the same outcomes with being less aggressive too or better outcomes, worse outcomes? I mean, obviously there's no, like, a, I haven't done any case studies, but right. I feel like, um, I feel like my outcomes have actually been better or, um, I would even say I've almost like, I don't want to say this. I've wasted less time by not just like cranking the shit out of people in internal rotation. Not that I like would do, do that, but I may like, like just beat it against the wall. Like we need more, we need more, we need more. Um, so I think more than anything, I've just removed pieces that have been not very worthful. Yeah. So, um, Okay. Okay. So with that, uh, and I know this is kind of putting you on the spot, but if you were going to go to like hip internal rotation and you were going to give somebody something to do, like somebody comes in, obviously it depends completely on the assessment big time. Um, so I realize I'm cutting out the assessment piece, which is massive, but what are like some of the biggest, like if you had two or three big things that you would give for hip internal rotation, what would that be? Uh, it would be to address, hip extension first and then address hip adduction second. Uh, and if you can clear those two up, then I would say whatever internal rotation they have um, is probably what they're going to get. Um, I knew you were going to do something like that. <laughs> <laughs> I knew you were going to go with something like that. So, okay. I, I mean, to expand more on that, so, so for an exercise, uh, we can get deeper into this, but for an exercise, just think about the hamstrings as opposed to your pelvic tilt. Two things that, um, so what's going to clear up hip range of motion if we're, we're figuring it, it it's uh, not soft tissue limited um, or uh, it's not limited by joint structure or genetic differences. Um, so posteriorly tilting to uh, clear more space for internal rotation is one component of it. Um, again, there's a it's part of the assessment to kind of figure out how much you really need to address of that. But um, so if someone can extend their hip so they can use their hamstrings and glutes to extend their hip, um, then you have sagittal plane motion there. Um, and then if you can fully extend your hip, now you're checking adduction um, with the Obers test. And if you can get that frontal plane action, then, then transverse plane is is a I mean, a coupled motion. So if you can get both sagittal and frontal, you should be able to get transverse, um, you would assume. So uh, so addressing hamstring and glute to get hip extension, as far as like active exercises, I'm, I'm going after hamstring and glute. And then um, if I feel like they can obtain a reasonable amount of hip extension, then I'll, I'll put them into uh, a position that requires them to adduct. Um, now, all of that can be relative to however much range of motion they have. So if they don't have full hip extension, um, it, most of the time you can use like that 90-90 position or a hook line position because everybody has enough hip extension to be able to get into those two positions. Um, now, if someone lacked a very end range, then there's things that you can do in sideline with like the foot on the wall to get them into like full hip extension. Um so they're laying like parallel to the, the ground and their foot goes up on the wall. Um, it pretty much 
in the same position as you would perform uh, an Ober's test with that top leg. Um, their foot's just in contact with the wall. And then you can have them push down into like a med ball or something that keeps the, the knee about um, shoulder or, or hip width apart. So they're really not going into any adduction. It's just an isometric adduction at neutral. But you're working the adductor uh, and you're working, I mean, there's reciprocal inhibition that'll go on too. So if you're working the adductor, there's going to be um, potentially some relaxation for a better lack of a better way to say it in the, to like the glute med area, I would think. Yeah. Yeah. I would agree with that. Yeah. Um, which is, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Cause there, so with the glute med, there's, there's different fi- There's got anterior and posterior fibers. So they, they do different things. The anterior is going to internally rotate. Uh, posterior is going to externally rotate. Um, so, which is why you would, because to some extent you'll feel pe- people will say that they feel their, their glute working too um, with the, like an adductor isometric, you'll feel the adductor, but you get them to hold it long enough. They'll feel the glute med kicking on too. Um, and that's the anterior fibers because that those fibers would internally rotate the femur. Nothing's okay. actually moving, but all it's all relative. I mean, you're just contracting the muscles that would do that. So you're saying someone does not have any adduction at this point in time. So you're trying to work them, work that capacity into them at the whatever level they can be challenged at. Same thing with hip extension. So if you you wanted to really work someone with more hip extension, you could put somebody on a bench, laying on a bench, and then their feet up on maybe like a 45 pound plate. So it takes them further into hip extension um, than just say. Um, hook lying on the ground because now their feet are lower down to the ground. Um, so they're going towards say maybe 10 degrees of flexion as opposed to 30 degrees of flexion, whatever they may be in hook lying um, with the hip. So then you, you still work the same components there. Then you, you take them to as far into hip extension as they can go and feel their hamstrings and feel their glutes working without feeling their low back kicking on if that makes sense. Okay. So the first one, essentially you are at your hips and knees are at 90, 90 and you're laying on your side with a ball between the knees and your, and your feet are on the wall. Yep. And you are pressing isometrically adduction and idea. And like, uh, so then basically that would promote internal rotation. You're not doing the motion, but that would hypothetically promote internal rotation range of motion or improvements in the top leg. Right. Potentially okay. yeah. reciprocal inhibition that's going on there too. Yep. That makes sense. Okay. Now with that foot on the wall there, say someone can't get into full hip extension um, because they'll, you'll notice them kind of cranking into extension at their low back or um, you'll notice them kind of rotating at their torso. They can't keep a nice straight line. Um, then you just take them out of so much hip extension. So the closer you, you take your butt towards the wall, um, the less hip extension they have to go through, um, okay. whatever hip extension they can go through, then you would, um, take them through that range of motion there. Um, same concepts than, than whatever range of motion you got into hip extension, then you isometrically contract into adduction. Okay. I'll same, take that. Yeah. And the same concept when you're on your back doing the hamstring and, and glute. Um, posterior pelvic tilt variation is you're 
um, starting them out into however much hip extension you can get. Hip extension is really your only um, driver there that you're trying to find um, or improve upon. So uh, that's where 90-90 position is the easiest because you can just put your feet on a bench and dig your heels down to feel the hamstrings. Harder to feel your glute in that position, but pretty easy to get your hamstrings. Um, take them in a hook line, easier to feel your glute, harder to feel your hamstrings. Uh, you take them laying on a bench and their feet flat on the ground where they're in the full hip extension at that point in time. Uh, harder to feel the hamstrings. Hard, easier to feel your glute, but very easy to feel your low back too if you don't have as much enough range of motion. That makes sense. What kind, well, like the isometric holds, what kind of what kind of holds and like reps and sets are you typically doing? I do it for breasts, so like four or five breasts. Three, usually I'll, I usually do three sets, four or five breasts. Um, then once they start getting the hang of it, so say they get the hang of like the bridge variation, then you know I want them to go on to other stuff that and not waste as much time on it because they have it down. Um, then I'll just go to one set of five breath and then move on to the next thing. Okay. And that's, that's ideally, yeah, that's ideally what I'd like to get them to two eventually is like some sort of home program where it's like one or two of these isometric hold deals and then some type of like actually fitness based exercises, whether that's the third and fourth, maybe fifth, five is about the tops that I give to people. Okay. So you're just looking for like with the breaths and stuff, you're just looking for like minimal effective dosage essentially eventually like, yeah but with, there's like lot, as they get better yeah yeah but early on there's a lot of motor learning that goes on so uh that's yeah there's a lot of more repetition there okay uh all right that's cool uh hip uh yeah i'm totally stealing these for myself uh hip external rotation anything in particular that you may go into hep wise things yeah. you like um same kind of concept there uh so it's all active based um to where i work them into different ranges of motion of hip flexion and hip extension um so easiest way to look at it is the, the two clamshell versions so you have your hips flexed clamshell where you're just externally rotating nothing more than that right now um and then it's purely open chain. Uh, and then your uh, legs extended, your body's in a straight line, and you just raise your leg up into true hip at abduction with the knee extended. So those sideline hip abduction raise. That's to work on hip external rotation? Yeah. So, so okay. those two. So those two would be, I mean, that's, that's a starting point to just kind of look at it. So that, that's the active versions that you would do in the open chain. Um, but to make things a little bit more um, dialed in, the concept's still the same where I'm working them into hip flexion and then more and more hip extension um, as well too to try to improve that hip extension component as well. Um, so with the hip flexion, instead of just doing your normal clamshell with their foot or just kind of wherever they are in space, if you put their feet against the wall, it's like they're standing on something. So the wall is the floor. and depending on how high you put that top foot off the floor um, is how much uh, they're going to have to pronate on their foot and still feel the whole foot flat on the ground. Uh, Cause if you think about the squat, you have to keep your three points of contact there and then externally rotate 
to push out to, to create torque. Yep. So that's what I'm doing on the wall it is just the exact same thing um, where feet are on the wall and then I'll have them push their knees forward, which would be the, essentially the same thing as a squat and then externally rotate out of that while keeping their foot flat on the wall. And um, so that, that's working hip external rotation there actively. Um, the problem when you do that body weight, so if you do that body weight with somebody, they're going to be able to externally rotate way too much because if you're standing and you try to externally rotate, you're just going to sprain your ankle if you roll out too far, whereas if you're on the wall, nothing <laughs> bad's going to happen. So yep. They'll just externally rotate to where their foot comes off the wall and they're like, ah, I can't feel my glute working. So you really got to drive that foot pressure into the wall. And someone who is deconditioned may not necessarily feel it as much. Um, but for someone who is fairly physically active, um, you're probably going to have to put a band around their knees um, to get them to actually feel their glute at the same time too. Um, but driving that foot pressure should increase the sensation uh, and it should kind of surprise them on how fatigued their glute gets with it. But yeah, I, I like that. The especially like, like for me, if I work with like a lot of athletes who are squatting, um, even just as far like, would you say that? Now I'm kind of going off tangent, but would you say that you could actually not not just if you're trying to use that for someone to work on true hip ER, but you could also use that as like trying to work on like proper knee position with squatting. For sure. And it's in like a less threatening position if you're supine with the feet up on the wall. Yeah. I mean, if someone has, oh, pain, you can't figure out anything to get their pain to go away with a squat and you just want to work the glutes. You do that. And if nothing more, it gives them something when they can go to a squat, it gives them something to kind of reference where you're just like, remember how you kind of put your foot onto the wall and you glued the foot to the wall and you turned your knee out. That's what I want you to do when you squat here. So they have something to kind of reference there too. That's cool. I like that. I've never, th I've never thought of that. That's a good one. Um, the, the other thing too, with the feet on the wall is um, if you're not using a band, you, you're probably going to have to go to like shoulder width apart with the feet. Um, Cause if you go too far down, then they're not going to reach the amount of external rotation they're capable of and they'll just roll their ankle out. Um, so you got to kind of play around with that a little bit as far as where you position the foot. That makes sense. You can to um, put that top foot in uh, a little bit farther in front of the uh the bottom foot on the wall um if that makes sense but that, that'll force them to because then you, you still tell them to drive the knee forward like you would in a squat um so someone who maybe has poor ankle range of motion where they can't necessarily drive their knee too far forward having that staggered stance will still put their hip into um uh, it, it'll rotate their they'll, they'll have to turn their pelvis more if I know you're trying to say yeah I know I know what you're trying to say I can visualize that yeah because you're trying to work on the lack of ankle dorsiflexion yeah and then so the, the hip extended version you really can't do in the closed chain um so that that's always been an open chain one um but uh the big thing there that I'm looking at is making sure that they don't roll out and they stay stacked on top of each other um, because if they if they roll away then they're just um, they're, they're rolling out of the position so they're, they're not if you're going to externally rotate you have to internally rotate on your other side and stay stay there to 
Um, if, if you just roll out, your pelvis is rolling, and you're not getting external rotation from the femur. Yep. Yeah. So that, that's the big thing that I'm looking for there. Um, you can – so people with, like, weird uh, – like the whole lateral shift component of it um, that you'll see with some, like, disc issues uh, or people have had back pain for a while. They just have, like, that pelvic shift. Um, so the McKenzie thought is to kind of, you know, push them the opposite way with a repetitive motion, which doesn't necessarily always feel that well. But if you put them in sideline and you just have them reach that top leg long, that can create that same type of uh, shift to occur. Because if you, if you imagine yourself laying on your back or laying on your side and you reach the top leg as long as you can, you're going to have to internally rotate or um, adduct the down ribs. Um, to reach that top leg longer. Um, so you'll actually feel some more ab activity on the downside uh, abs. So if you're laying, on your, yeah. if you're laying on your left side, you'd feel the left abs working while you reach the right leg long to feel the right glute working. And that, depending yeah. on where they're shifted, you may want to emphasize one side or the other too. Never thought of that. I, I, I just go off the theory just – blindly shove needles in people <laughs> apparently there's more to it than that do. <laughs> no that's good that's kind of what i was looking for kind of pick your brain on those and see what just some different hip ir er things that you go to yeah um all right are you good if i ask you about the shoulder if you have anything similar yeah um the shoulder the shoulder goes into the breathing a lot. Um, so scapula position is going to be affected by um, airflow and air pressure in the rib cage by quite a bit, um, especially in the transverse plane. So normal, if you're thinking about uh, the scapula, you always think you know upward rotation. Uh, an anterior and posterior tilt of the scapula. Um, but you don't consider much like the transverse plane action that happens with that. Again, it's kind of a coupled motion. But so say someone has medial, that inferior border winging, um, as well as medial border prominence, um, that scapula is going to be tilted. Uh, well, we'll say We'll say internally rotated, if that makes sense for the, the scapula, because their their medial border is going to be prominent, and then the the lateral portion is going to be more anterior of the scapula. Yeah, Paul. Yeah. So, a couple things happen there. The 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 humerus either has to follow that position, or it's going to compensatorily move out of that position to achieve neutral again. So if that medial border is prominent and the inferior border is prominent, so we're saying that in the transverse plane, the scapula is moving into internal rotation, the humerus would follow that into internal rotation too. So that would be um, the person who's walking uh, and their thumb pretty much faces their uh, body. Their palms are back, they're pronated. Um, whereas somebody could also 
externally rotate out of that and walk more normalish, you'd say, with the thumb kind of pointing forward. Um, so what they've done there is they've concentrically shortened their external rotators by um, uh, externally rotating back to neutral, if that makes sense, at the humerus in the posterior cuff. Yeah, the, so the position of their scapula, if they're – like if their humerus was in neutral would technically be internally rotated, but because it's not, they are shortening their external rotators to bring it back to what appears to be neutral, even though it's not technically like neutral, the head in the socket. Correct. Okay. So there's a case where like all about strengthening posterior cuff and getting endurance into a posterior cuff. But if you think the lack of internal rotation is limiting their or impacting their pain and you're trying to improve pain, um, it may not be useful to actually strengthen them at that particular point in time. Um, what may be more helpful is trying to change position of scapula so you change orientation of the posterior cuff. If, yeah, because they're already walking around with their cuff, their posterior cuff tight all day. Yeah. Correct? Yeah. So things you would do there, um, number one is you, you drive humerus position into internal rotation. So a couple things that does that well is uh, like a side plank. Um, so if you pronate with your down arm on the side plank, you're going to drive somebody into internal rotation. Um, so that works well for that. Um, two, if you just get someone to um, – this, this works if you – combine it with breathing, but you, you have someone laying on your, the ground and they just internally rotate against a band to give them resistance to try to activate subscap. Um, so they're 90-90 with abduction, elbow, and then they're pulling down into internal rotation with a band. Um, that at least, again, kind of goes for subscap, goes for internal rotation. Um, you're not trying to use lat uh, and you can uh, work on changing somebody out of that or that concentric orientation of the posterior cuff. So that's where biasing some internal rotation would be helpful. Uh, and then the third version would be like a, a diagonal D, D2 uh, flexion where you're coming down and across the body um, to the opposite pocket. Down and across D2 extension. That extent, yeah, flexion would be overhead. Yeah, extensions yeah. coming down. Okay. Yeah. Um, so, so that'd be another one. It just it drives pronation, it drives internal rotation, and you do that with resistance. Um, that can work on changing the the cuff orientation, posterior cuff orientation, from concentric to uh, the length tension relationships being a little bit more equal, front to back. Okay, what kind of, like, uh, take, like, the supine 90-90 with a band going into a little bit of internal rotation. Are you doing, like, static holds there? Are you doing, like, contract relax? Are you going further into internal rotation with that, like, each successive rep? Yeah, static holds, um, pretty much the same concept as with the hip, where you're trying to take them through as much range of motion as they can just competently achieve and then hold that position. Um, after some breast cycles, they may or may not be able to get further. If they can get further, go ahead and train them further. If not, then you just stick with whatever they're at for that particular time. Okay. So 
let's say that you had them doing like, let's say they start out 90, 90. Um, the, if you have them doing like successive breaths, when they exhale, are you having them attempt to go a little bit, if they can go further into internal rotation, or is there a certain time that you try to have them actively go into more internal rotation? Is it in the exhalation? Is it? Uh, I, I don't really. Does it matter? Yeah, I, I'm having them hold it, so I really don't care when they go. I don't, I don't think it matters. Uh, um, okay. So the bigger part is, I, like, once they understand the position, then it's it's pretty much all about cueing the breathing. Um, the especially with the ninety ninety version there of the internal rotation. Um, I'll go into the breathing in just a second, but. Um, it's really all about the position there um, with the, with the breast cycle uh, with the D one flexion. Um, D two. Gosh, dang it. D2, yeah. yeah. It's, it's confusing. Yeah. D two flexion um, extension. That, that's my only that contribution. To this. Yeah. <laughs> that's my only contribution to this podcast. Education wise. <laughs> it's correcting you on your D two, not nomenclature. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so down and across. So, so that one, um, you don't have to, you're not going to be worried so much about the breathing. And I may time that up to where they're performing that repetitiously, as opposed to just kind of holding that. Cause it's kind of an awkward one to just hold. Um, but, uh, if you, now there's the other component is if the scaps you feel are very retracted and you want to actually get some serratus with that too, that reach can be helpful. Uh, okay. In combination with that and actually holding it there. Yeah. Um, with the plank side plank one um that one there's really not like the ground fixes a lot like we talked about before just having that appropriate receptive feedback the ground fixes a lot the problem is is finding a side plank version that everybody can do um because not everybody can do a side plank especially if they're having shoulder pain because of the weight that goes through it so um like sometimes i'll even have people just lay on their side um, with the knees and hips bent and just have their arm on the ground and then kind of push the ground away from them a little bit that way where they're not actually lifting off their butt off the ground, but they're just getting the pronation and, and rotating into the ground. Yeah. Just so there's not so much weight going through. <laughs> yeah. But I think as far as like change and in internal rotation, um, I don't see that making as, when I've done it, it doesn't make as drastic of a change in somebody's internal rotation as if you actually get them to do a side plank correctly and then you pair that up with some breathing. Okay. Um, uh, it, so the, this is mostly in relation to depending on what your findings are with the scapula, correct? Yeah, and, and, and rib cage. Okay. So that, that's the next component. The scapula is just kind of the easiest place to start the conversation. Um, but the rib cage is going to, the rib cage is going to influence where the scap sits, um, which the breathing pattern is going to influence the rib cage. Rib cage is going to influence where the scap sits, scap sits, where the scap sits is going to influence the humerus. Um, what's shitty about that is anywhere along the line could be some type of compensatory action. So it can, it, it fools you a lot. Um, so it, it takes, it, sometimes you just got to play around with it. Um, the old shotgun approach. <laughs> a little bit. Just see how, yeah. Test see how it goes. Test. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> test, retest. Um, but uh, so with the rib cage, 
the easiest place to start this is uh, the the pump handle and bucket handle. So lower ribs should operate more in the frontal plane where there's that bucket handle where the lower ribs are going to move out wider on inhalation, exhalation, uh, move back and forth. Then upper ribs, higher up in the sternum, is going to be that pump handle where the sternum flares up. Um, so it's going to be a little bit more of that sagittal movement that occurs in the upper ribs. So what you'll see with a lot of people is that they're um, – instead of getting true bucket handle with the lower ribs, they'll flare the ribs, lower ribs forward into um, anterior posterior. So the ribs go anterior. So then the backside ribs have to kind of move with that too. Uh, and there's where the rib cage starts moving away from the scapula is that they can't actually get the lower ribs to depress back because their bucket handle is flaring their um, lower ribs anteriorly as opposed to utilizing true bucket handle in the expansion of the lower ribs if that makes sense yep yeah I follow you for the pump handle what people will do there um, is instead of the on the inhalation instead of getting the uh, sternum to kind of pump handle up that's where you'll see people breathing with their neck. So there's that vertical rise of the shoulders up and down. Um, so their upper chest expansion is more um, top, bottom, moving up and down as opposed to front to back expansion that occurs. So that's where you'll get some overactivity of a lot of the uh, neck musculature. Um, you maybe even say the levator has some component to that too. Um, obviously more scalenes, um, pec minor, um, SCM, things like that are going to be a lot more, uh, a lot more of a factor, but, uh, anyways, just trying to calm that down and then really actually getting them to expand, um, at the chest. Now, the other thing that does is if you expand at the chest, well, let me start here. So instead of with the pump handle, People suck at being able to pump handle up on inhalation. They do it through shrugging. Um, they also suck at being able to exhale and pump handle down. And where they'll exhale instead is by collapsing uh, their shoulders forward. Uh, so there's your rounded shoulder presentation. Is somebody trying to exhale by um, rounding their shoulders, bringing their shoulders forward, um, and exhaling all their air out in that fashion. Uh, think of the tired runner again, someone who's, uh, I mean, putting their hands on their knees, you're internally rotating, you're putting your hands down. So it's helping you exhale some air out at that point in time. Um, but then also because your hands on your knees, you're stabilizing the rib cage. So it's easier to get your next inhale in as well too. But when you're standing that that's where the whole rounded shoulders can kind of come into play. And people will think it's kyphosis, but they could actually have a flat T-spine where they're, again, their scaps are very, very prominent, medial, lower border, and it looks like they're rounded, but it's just your shoulders rounding. So it's, it's more of that pec minor kind of coming down potentially as uh, an assist on exhalation. Um, 
think of like youth athletes uh, who are, uh, you know, high intensity sport, breathing at a high frequency rate, very, very aggressively. Um, maybe that's why they tend to resort to that position in addition to obviously sitting shitty in school all day long. But. Yeah. Fortnite. <laughs> right. <laughs> Fortnite. That's the th- apparently I'm too old to understand what that is now, but yeah. I didn't even know that was okay. a free game. I thought it was like some paid thing. But. No, I don't know how they make money off of it, but man, every kid that I treat talks about Fortnite when you're BSing with them. Like, Hey, what are you doing this week? We're playing Fortnite. <laughs> So you get dropped out of like a bus or something. I don't know. I'm way too damn old for this. Uh, okay, so but, so in, so on inhalation though, what what would what would bring them further back as opposed to like trying to always uh, aggressively externally rotate and uh, scapular retract somebody? Is if you just get somebody to expand in their upper chest, it's going to spread the shoulders out apart too, so that full inhalation to the upper chest is going to spread the shoulders apart and take them back is set setting restly more into that external rotated state. So, um, that's where air volume can influence scapula position is if you can't get full breath of air in, um, your scap is going to not, you can't get a full breath of air in your scap is going to have not quite the ability to externally rotate. If you, if you're using your pec minor and in your shoulder forward shoulder presentation to try to exhale air out, it's going to bring you into that internal rotated state at the scapula. Which would then limit your, your, like your ability to have humoral external rotation. Right. So what, what you're trying to do with those exercises with the, the inhales and the exhales is you're trying to first get the lower. So air volume is going to fill from the bottom up. So it's just like a glass of water. It fills bottom up. Uh, so that's what I usually tell people to, as far as how I describe it to them. Um, so the first thing they should feel is deep down. Now, when you're the, it's hard for people to conceptualize this. So you have to use pressure um, as an exp, ex, as an explanation, and you want them to kind of understand where they're feeling pressure, um, so that they can actually feel the correct things happening because it's it's very odd for somebody who is not familiar with their body to try to get this specific task down. (laughs) Yeah. Um, so what I say is, um, is you want to fill the bottom up first. Um, so you're trying to breathe down low into your back as possible. Um, but we have to first get your rib cage to come back. So if they can't do that on an exhalation, then you're either manually doing that for them by pressing down on the lower ribs or uh, you're having them in like a quadruped position where they're pushing and and reaching or potentially on their back and they're reaching up towards the ceiling too, uh, just to help them learn how to get the lower ribs down. Um, So that's the first step is getting their, being able to exhale and get their, uh, the the lower ribs to depress so that they can actually get bucket handle action to occur there. Once they have that figured out, then it goes to, okay, now fill up to your upper chest. And when you do that, you should feel your sternum kind of rising up towards the ceiling um, as opposed to seeing a lot of neck muscle and someone shrugging up. So that's where you're, you're trying to get them to kind of fill up the chest. Now, if you have someone reach forward, straight ahead 
um, into normal, into like shoulder flexion at 90 degrees. That will help them retract the lower ribs, but it, because your arms are close together, it's going to kind of restrict your ability to pump handle because your, your arms are in close together. So as soon as they have the ability to uh, control the lower ribs, I'm usually actually putting their hands out wide into a T position, which is going to open the area up a lot more. Plus it'll passively just kind of rest the scap into more um, external rotation uh, in that position too. So from that position, then your, your concepts of breathing still remain the same where you're, uh, feeling low first and then going up into the chest. And I'll usually try to get people to inhale for four seconds and exhale for five to six seconds. Okay. Yeah, no, that, it all makes sense. Yeah. So sometimes just doing that and getting them to breathe in that position, um, if they have a large lordosis, then you need to really consider addressing the, the hips too with what we've done with hip extension with the glute bridge, getting the hamstring and the um, glute involved as well. But otherwise you can just have them hook line kind of resting there and, and actually get them to breathe in that way. Um, and like, if you really wanted to emphasize it, even if you think they have it, but really emphasizes it, you just, you put one hand. So say we're working the, the right, the, let's say, say right shoulder. Um, so you're going to press down on the lower ribs. So push it down. Um, so you depress the rib cage back, secure that there. And then your other hand goes, um, right top side of the shoulder and, um, kind of use like my thinner eminence to, uh, almost like you're giving like a posterior glide of the shoulder and you just push them down there. And then you tell them to breathe into your hand right there to get them to kind of fill out the upper chest. So now you're, you're holding the rib cage down, uh, the lower rib cage down so they can't protrude it forward and they have to get bucket handle action on the inhalation. And then you're holding the shoulder blade back into posterior tilt as well as external rotation and then having them really think about filling that with air pressure up too um, to drive the scap further. So just by doing that, sometimes it, it clears up a lot of internal rotation, especially in um, females who are not uh, quite so strong. Um, that's, that's <laughs> like, like, <laughs> who are like really sympathetic, the more sympathetic driven somebody is and the, the stronger someone is and the more they just, the harder in general it is to change with somebody with the breathing pattern. Um, but yeah, that, that would then, so then the next component is, okay, now you have the breathing component, right? I've tried pushing down on you. Um, to, to emphasize it even more, still not quite getting the change of motion I want into it. So then I'm going to have you actively go into internal rotation too. Okay. Uh, my next question. Do you ever answer questions with a short answer? <laughs> that's very <laughs> thorough. That was good. Yeah, that was very... that's, that's what I was saying. The, the shoulder one is not some, the, the hip one I could get a little shorter, but that shoulder one to explain that one, there's, too many damn moving parts and it took a long time to figure that thing out. Well, that's what I figured too. Is it, that's why I was asking you these questions is because they're like, the, yeah, they're very thought provoking answers. It's not just as much like, 
the easier stuff where it's like roll your posterior cuff with a little cross ball. Yeah. Not that there's anything wrong with that. I'm not saying that, but like I, that's what I was looking for when I asked these questions is answers such as that. Yeah. So. Do you get punched in the face? My face is bleeding. I just saved some child from a burning building. And this, this is what happened. <laughs> um, all right. I guess that, that answers my questions. Yeah. The hard part comes when you like it all sounds good on paper because that, that, that makes sense. But then there's so many, the, the scap can be in so many different positions and the rib cage can be in so many different positions. Like there's the variance of that is way greater than the variance of the, the lower extremity. Um, yeah. I I, would you in part just because there's so, so many more moving parts and pieces? Yeah. I, the degrees of freedom or more, I mean, the same thing, the nominates attached to the SI, which is not much, there is motion, but there's not as much motion that happens there. The scap is clavicle and it's just free floating back there. So, I mean, there's so many ways that that thing could be positioned into. And then the breathing, the, the breathing, the, there can be years of just things that happen over the time there. So that the, the, the costal cartilage in the front, and that, that's why you see the deformation in the rib cage a little bit is, is costal cartilage in the front. So, um, the first thing that's going to fill up is that lower rib or the, the lower rib cage with air. Um, so, or air pressure. So the first thing that's going to compensate and has the ability to compensate is the lower rib cage. Um, whereas the, the ribs that attach more to the sternum, that's a little bit firmer of attachment. It's going to be a lot harder to, um, like change an actual physical pre presentation there. Um, yeah. I follow you. Cool. Anything else? Or? No, that was good. That's kind of, that was that was kind of the discussion I was hoping to have. Cool.